Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John and a quick PSA regarding my new virtual men's group that meets on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pacific time. There's only a few spots left, but I thought you might want to know about it. It's a quick, easy, and cheap way to work with me. And maybe some of you have a career. Maybe you've made some money. Maybe you have a reputation for yourself at work. But maybe what you lack is things like happiness or purpose, a fulfilling relationship or a healthy sex life, the passion, happiness, and ease that you once had with your spouse, an emotion other than numbness, disconnection, or irritability. This group is for men who are trying to be values-driven, interested in lifelong learning, and curious about how to become the best possible versions of themselves. The group is not for men who want to remain in the comfort zone while sitting at home watching TV. So again, group meets weekly, Wednesday, 7 p.m. It's only $95 per session, and you can call 510-863-0057 for more details. That's 510-863-0057. Five, seven. And now on with the show. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with yet another episode of the Evolved Caveman Podcast, which should have been more accurately named the Evolving Caveman Podcast, but you know, we live and learn. In any case, I've got with me today Danielle Sandberg, Sandberg, pardon me. And Danielle uh-huh. is amazing in and of herself. She left her law firm after winning a $6 billion judgment to travel the world and study how to create a filling, fulfilling life. Now, by the way, she didn't win $6 billion. She just won a $6 billion judgment for her client. A little bit of a you know, <laughs> fine-tuning there. But as an authentic leadership expert, author, and speaker, and coach, she walks leaders on the path that our society doesn't teach us how to navigate, the inward path. This is the journey we have to take to cultivate power leadership, powerful leadership to transform our lives, businesses, and the world. So Danielle helps leaders navigate building mental wellness and emotional agility amidst intense pressure. She helps them to create joy, peace, and connectedness at work and at home. She helps them to shift the hustle culture paradigm to promote clarity and calm. She helps them to connect to deep purpose and values to expedite effectiveness. And, you know, one of the questions that comes up for me, although, you know, we're quite on the same page here. You know, the question of why do these things matter? Why would we invest in personal development? And one of the interesting stats is that according to McKinsey, professionals who feel fulfilled report six and a half times higher resilience, four times better health, and one and a half times in the likelihood to go above and beyond at work. So Danielle, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really psyched about this conversation. Thanks, John. I'm thrilled to be here. So Tell me about your story. How did you get to this point of writing a book? So when I um, got back from that trial, the $6 billion trial, I was diagnosed with depression, which was no surprise because when I looked in the mirror and saw my own reflection, my eyes were empty. Like there was no one home. And I was just just operating on autopilot. And that's when I realized something needed to change. So when the partner on the case called me and he said, Danielle, the jury came back with their verdict. We won. Congratulations. I said, thank you. And before I knew it, I said, I quit. 
Good for you. I didn't, sorry. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. And I didn't know what came next. You know, like the prudent thing to do, having this very traditional linear trajectory of a, of a career would lead to, before you make a decision so extreme to have something lined up, to have a job or a plan, but I had nothing because I just, the words flew out of my mouth and, you know, the partner and me on the phone were both kind of like in stunned silence for a little bit. So I didn't know that this was, this was what I was doing at the time. I just thought I was a burnt out, you know, like overwhelmed, overworked corporate statistic who needed rest and needed a break. So I packed my bags and I decided to travel the world. But what I was really doing was exploring what it meant to create a fulfilling life. You know, what did success mean in my terms, which is not something that we're taught, right? We're taught that you can achieve success through wealth, prosperity, power, prestige, or influence. And that's it. And hopefully you can get all all of them, right? The more, the better. But when I realized, look, like that, that mountain, I climbed to the top and it is lonely up there and there's got to be something else out there. That's when I looked inward and I said, okay, what are my terms for success and how do I create a fulfilling life out of these? And so through my travels, I was actually just writing a travel blog for friends and family so they could keep up with me. But I personally don't really get excited about reading where someone had dinner and like they went to such and such temple. It's like, okay, that's nice. So I was writing something for friends and family that really had me in it, which felt very, very healing in its own right. And so I was collecting these writings and blogs and I've been writing since I was a kid. And at some point during my travels, I looked at this, you know, sheets and sheets of paper and realized, oh, I'm writing a book. I'm writing the book that I wish that I had had when I was young for how to navigate life in an authentic way. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I, I love the idea of defining success for yourself because that was something I started looking at at 17 when I was just killing myself to be, quote, successful. And it started me questioning that success idea because I didn't feel there was any room in success for things like happiness or relaxation or contentment or meaning. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it was all about fame, wealth, power, getting into the best school you can go to, you know, kind of that mindless subscription to the bullshit success story that we're fed as young kids. You know, you get good grades, get into the best college you can, you get married, you have kids, you get promoted, you make money, and then you retire at 65 and then you'll be happy. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it doesn't work. So one of the, I mean, I, I loved you from our first conversation. And then I started looking at the book you wrote and I fell in love with you even more. And oh. one of the reasons is you have a quote from Ram Dass, which opens your book and it says, a being whose awareness is totally free, who does not cling to anything is liberated. And for those of you listeners that are uninitiated, Ram Dass first went to India in 67. At that point, he was still known as the psychologist from Harvard, Dr. Richard Alpert. And he was also a psychedelic pioneer with Dr. Tim Timothy Leary. And then he met his guru, changed his name, which means servant of God. So what does that quote mean to you? I love that quote. It's his version of the Tao, in my opinion, and the quote from the Tao, that is the truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. 
which is really about how when we see through our attachment to our desire systems, then everything has a different tint to it, right? So it's really like a fancy way of saying when you fall in love and you see life through rose-tinted glasses, everything is a little bit different because you're being pumped full of oxytocin and all those amazing chemicals. And so someone else might look at you and say, you're not seeing reality. You're seeing a different thing, right? Because you want this relationship to work. You're, you're attached to it. It's you know consuming you with this beautiful feeling. And so when we can get some space from our desire systems, then all of a sudden we can see more of what's true. So how did you get to that point of that awareness? It seems to me of the importance of non-attachment. You know, really like just, there's so many things, right? Life keeps offering us opportunities and context to peel away. Oh, I see how I'm attached to this or I'm attached to that. Like right now I'm doing that with motherhood and how attached I am to that role of of being a mother. I have two kids three and under. And so life is naturally going to help me with that because when they're one and they're three, like you're supposed to be really attached to them. They need you for everything. And then as you can attest and share stories, I'm sure as they grow up and they need you less, that role shifts and my attachment to that role will shift too. But initially, you know, it was with that idea of success. It was my attachment to who I needed to be in the world. And that was so many decades perfected a persona of that big DC law firm attorney who commanded respect, prestige, power in any room. And if I was going to give that up, it felt like walking into this, you know, dangerous vacuum of who am I? Because it seems to me that you must have achieved at a really high level from a young age on in order to get to that position at a young age. And then it's really easy to get attached to ego at that point and how powerful you are and how well-known you are and how successful you are. And I think most people have like a really hard time letting go of that because it is addictive. And, and how did you let go of your attachment to your own ego? Because that's really what it sounds like to me. Mm. I wish I could say that it's an achievement that I did that. <laughs> well, but, I don't think any of us yeah. do it permanently, right? I think we get that understanding temporarily, but we can hold on to it and we can get back there again more easily. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the biggest practice is stillness, is that slowing down and focusing on presence, what is right here, right now. And there's still a little person inside of me that when I say that, and I know it's true, it goes, ugh. Because my mind wants a challenge. It wants it a mountain to climb. It wants a challenge and a puzzle to solve. And like saying, oh, actually, mind, you're not part of the equation. Yeah. My mind goes, no, no, no. Let's look for a different way. <laughs> but that is the way. Yeah. And, and it, one of the voices that comes up in my head is a lot of my clients saying, Oh, but Danielle, I I suck at stillness. Like I have too many voices in my head. There's too many things to do. Like I can't do that. What do you say to them? Yeah, I get that a lot. I go, that's really nice, but I don't want to do that or that doesn't work for me. Yeah. I'm too busy. I'm too important. I I can't do that. My mind doesn't work that way. Right, right. I mean, there's a great a great quote that's like, um, you should spend 20 minutes a day in nature. And if you don't have 20 minutes, take an hour. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, you know, none of that's true that you can't do it, 
right? It's just that the inertia of our lives requires more effort to make that kind of change to be still. And it doesn't mean you have to go spend 20 minutes in nature. You could do it for 30 seconds. You could just do it while you wash your hands, where we're usually washing our hands to just get to the next thing. Just wash your hands and be in the moment of feeling the temperature of the water, you know, the soap on your fingers, hearing the sound of the water coming out of the faucet and just be in that space and then go do the next thing. Yeah. Or, or when you're driving or when you're taking a shower or when you're waiting in line at the bank, although I'm not sure we do that much anymore. Um, but I, I imagine in prior years, you were, I, I would suspect, highly over-identified with the thinker in your head. Is that oh, true? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so would you say stillness was the way to disengage from that at times? Yeah, it, it was the kind of, catalyst for moving out of the head into the rest of the human operating system of what's available for who we are, which is, you know, you can say your soul, your heart, your body, all your intuition, all of that, which we, (laughs) you know, especially as like super intellectual, rational people are told is a myth. Like it's not true. It's like how we used to believe in the Olympian gods and how now we know better and replace those things with science and data about weather reports and meteorology. Yeah, no, I I agree. Absolutely. And one of the lines that really hit me in your book, Atlas of Being, is who we are in this moment does not need to be who we remain and likely won't. Something strange happens in adulthood where we believe we are done becoming ourselves. In fact, we quite literally become new people every seven years as all the cells in our body are replaced. And many of us don't believe change is possible. And so we remain stuck. And so to me, the following is perhaps one of the most important questions we can face. So how do you encourage others to A, believe change is possible and B, to engage in that change? So one really simple thing that you can do is look back on your life and just see who you become throughout your life. And it'll show you how you change, whether it's physically right? Like my, my hair is turning gray. I'm a different person than I was, which even though that seems kind of silly or small has forced me to look in the mirror and shift how I identify with who I am in a physical package. Right. So like the Atlas of being is the Atlas of, for me, it was the world in this book of traveling, but it's also our inner Atlas of who we are and anything can be a vehicle or an Atlas to understanding that of who we are. So it can be your physical bodies, your atlas. It can be food. It can be your family, right? It can be your favorite activity. Yeah. And and one of the things I think that's the biggest barrier to change for people, as I said, is just this belief that, oh, I can't change that, whatever that is. And that can be really specific, you know, from change anywhere at all to, I can't change that one behavior in my relationship. And so I, I think that growth mindset is really critical to become aware of and to look at where in my life am I assuming a fixed mindset and assuming change isn't possible and then really questioning that and looking at that. Yeah, exactly. Can I ask you another question though? And this is a little bit unrelated, but I've been talking to men recently about how physical change and aging, and and you're quite young, so I apologize, affects our version of masculinity, our own interpretation of our masculinity. You mentioned gray hair and I thank you for sharing that. To what extent does that 
impact your version of your own femininity? I love that question. And I've been listening to some of your other episodes. And so I've been sitting with this topic, actually. And I talk about it a lot in terms of pregnancy. Like I said, I had two kids. And it's not just aging, but it's literal, physical, you know, huge shifts to my body, to our bodies when we're pregnant. And then on top of just, you know, the normal, typical pregnancy changes, with my first child, I had preeclampsia, which is a disease of really intense inflammation is one of the first things that doctors notice. And so I gained close to a hundred pounds. I couldn't fit in like even my maternity clothes, which are supposed to be, you know, like loose and fit anyone, anytime. No, they were tight and uncomfortable. I couldn't wear any shoes except for, you know, little house slippers. And so there has been this really um, ongoing and iterative experience of who am I in my body? And sometimes I look at my body and think, wow, like you perform miracles. Thank you so much. And then sometimes I look at my body and I go, gross. <laughs> right? Yep. And they're both, they're just both stories. Yeah. Right. And it's my responsibility. It's my honor. It's my privilege to decide what kind of story I want to have about who I am in relationship to my body. So is the short answer to that, that it's not affecting your femininity or that it's a kind of a constant. It's always affecting my femininity. Like before I got pregnant, I used to really when, when I was working at my law firm, I used to go to the gym five, six days a week. It was my outlet. I was a gym rat. Mm -hmm. I deadlifted. I think my PR was 265 and I was probably like weighing 135 at the time. Damn, that's impressive. Yeah. I mean, I was really into like, I could throw on anything and know I looked like good, you know, and um, that all changed. (laughs) I mean, rapidly it all changed. And so who I am is in terms of my femininity changed with that right? Of like, who can I be if I can't be in this like very um, athletic thin version of what society wants women to look like and that I just naturally happened to emulate. And you're a good person to ask this with because you have good awareness, good self-awareness. So I, I also believe that we're supposed to be, ideally we're a balance of the masculine and the feminine energies. And, you know, some people are, you know, 70, 30, 60, 40, 50, 50, whatever it is. But I talk to a lot of men who, well, I guess I talk to a lot of male clients who resist the feminine. And I think that's how we're socialized is to be hundred percent masculine, which does not serve us. But where would you say, you know, I, cause I'm thinking of you in the courtroom, right. As a high powered attorney, where would you say your masculine and feminine energies are now versus where they used to be? Oh my gosh. Totally different. Right. You hit it nail on. As a corporate attorney, I learned how to be in my masculine and how to emulate really masculine qualities at work because that's what they're looking for. Right. And that's just the the structure, the corporate vibe. You have to do that to adapt and be successful. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, you know, we, most of America doesn't understand it, but that's why we vilify Hillary Clinton is because she did all those things. And now we're like, where's your womanhood? Where's your femininity, yeah. right? Too much masculine for too many people. Exactly. And so now having exited the corporate world, well, I'll say initially when I exited the corporate world, I went, you know, swung the pendulum in the super opposite direction, right? Mm-hmm. Got like so, so spiritual and wooey and sandals and had crystals and I studied Reiki and became a Reiki master and was all about really pouring into intuition and energy because it was really what I was focused on cultivating. And anything that was corporate or masculine, I just was like, oh, I felt tight. But when I started my first company, I had to come back into more of a structure. I didn't know how to create that structure in a balanced way. I only knew what I had lived was my only model. And so I was creating a very masculine structured company and not enjoying myself in it and not knowing why. And so then, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that's fascinating. I mean, because one of the things that fascinates me is I think that women, when women enter, and you you could be masculine to a large degree before you enter the corporate world, but... Definitely, if you want to be successful in the corporate world as a woman, I think you have to adapt more masculine, more stereotypically masculine traits to be successful. But women are in a complete double bind in corporate America or in politics, for example, because if you're too feminine, then you're emotional and weak. If you're too masculine, you're a cold-hearted bitch. And there's no like middle road that women can walk because they're being judged on either side of that perfect line. Mm -hmm. What do you, I mean, what are your thoughts Mm -hmm. on that? I mean, you saying that makes me feel seen in a way that makes sense, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, there's only so many people, I mean, we are immersed in this kind of a world, but there's only so many people in the world who understand what you just said and understand it in an embodied way. We're like, Oh, I've lived that experience. Well, I haven't lived that personally, but yeah, I, I hear you. Well, yeah, yeah, but you know, there's. But I, I mean, I do the same in terms of balancing masculine and feminine right. as a man. Right. And that's not there, easy. It's there a, are it's men a difficult who have balancing a, act. Right. And like that's you know a great question for people is is it um, something that we're aware of that we're doing or are we just navigating inward to our authentic self and letting whoever that is at whatever balance it is come out to play. Yeah. And I I think we're doing it with complete utter lack of self-awareness. I I think it's the, you know, we're goldfish swimming in a fishbowl and that's the water and we can't even see the water Mm -hmm. because it's so deeply ingrained in us by virtue of how we're socialized as kids. We don't even realize the game we're playing and the judgments we're making. And that's such a huge factor to why everyone, I mean, I say everyone, 83% of employees now are getting, who are feeling burnt out at work, are looking towards fulfillment as equally as important as our salary. Yeah, particularly in the younger generations. Right, right. Um, well, and one of the things I wanted to touch on, because I, I think you embody this, is in my own experience, and particularly recently, um, I had this I had this awareness, this experience of 
visualizing, thanks to my own therapist, who's a monk, a former monk and a therapist, he was talking about source and getting in touch with source. And I had this visualization where I went down into this antechamber, kind of old, ancient. There was a meditation cushion. I sat down and meditated on it. And there's a big mandala doorway in the wall, this stone wall. And as I meditated, it opened, revealing, I'll just describe this briefly, it was source behind it, kind of coursing like a river behind the, the opening. And so I went in and touched it. My hand disappeared into a, a million bubbles. And I was like, oh, this is source. And I walked into it completely and I dissolved into source, which was complete ego dissolution and a sense of utter relaxation like I had never experienced, but I still had awareness. And there was a huge difference to me between it, like I could feel it viscerally in my body. It was a noticeable difference. And so it, it pointed out the significant difference to me between knowing a truth, which I have been really good at for decades, and feeling a truth in my body and in my bones. Do you have any thoughts on that? Mm, I love that. That was a meditation. It was a visualization. It was a place my mind took me as he was talking about source. And he said to me, like, I know I'm disconnected from source if I have any muscle tension anywhere in my body. And I thought, holy shit, like that's a really high bar. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what he was talking about, like being completely tension free until that visualization. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really incredible. Um, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. That is such an important piece of the book of Atlas of Being is to move the concepts that we learn into a more embodied state as what I say is from our brains into our veins, because that's exactly. when knowledge really transforms into wisdom. Um, and there's a quote that's uh, like, knowledge is only rumor until it lives in the bones. Mm. Um, and I don't remember who it's by, but <laughs> yes. So We keep learning and embodying at deeper levels the things that we know as we have experiences that show us how they apply. And we actually like pull those tools out or those concepts and we practice them. And then it goes in a layer, it goes in a layer, it goes in a layer until it becomes true. On that note, do you have a hard time getting some of your clients to practice the tools you teach? Um, you know, it's funny because like, I just don't frame it that way for myself. It's everybody has their own path and whatever pace they go, this is really my lesson that I've learned, whatever pace they go and whatever tools they take on are right in that moment for them. And it's kind of like as much as they can handle at once is the right amount. And if I try and force feed them a tool or say, you need to practice this one, and then they don't do it, to me, that's sort of the universe saying this isn't the right moment. Or the right tool, perhaps. Or the right tool. Right. Yeah. Or the right tool. Right. Because I, so I Ayurvedically, I don't really know. I know enough about Ayurveda to be dangerous. I really don't know a ton. <laughs> okay. That's me in a lot of areas. <laughs> but um, I am like, like most people are multiple of the four elements in their dosha, what's called their dosha. And my dosha is like 100% fire. 
Me too. Yeah. I don't know if I'm hundred percent, but I'm predominantly fire. Okay. Okay. So maybe you'll relate to this. So when yeah. I'm with someone, I could like give everything to them and like a fire hose and it can be completely overwhelming. So that's the lens. I don't relate that I- to that at all. Danielle. I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know me. So like I, like you have this too then. So I'm like really good at focusing and executing and getting things done. Like to me, ADD is something that I just don't understand because if I want to do something, I do it. So when people say like, oh, I didn't practice that tool or I forgot about that thing, I've learned to carry that space of grace, of understanding this person has their essential nature. And let's just work with that and see where that flows. Uh, beautiful. I love it. And, and thanks for the connection between Ayurvedic fire type and fire hose. I hadn't made that connection before. <laughs> I think it's absolutely accurate. I don't know if it's accurate for others, but it's totally accurate for me. Isn't that great? Oh. Uh, it's awesome. Yeah. And that's totally what I do. And I'll tell people I'll do it and then I'll do it. And then I'm like, shit, I got to slow that down. Um, it's just who you are. Yeah. I mean, so that's why this- I say that I work with clients who are like highly, highly committed and courageous, basically, who are just like, yeah, I want to sit in the discomfort of the fire of change because those are my people. Well, let me speak to the courage that it takes to do some of this work because that has become so apparent to me recently in reigniting, we'll use the fire analogy, reigniting my relationship with my fiance, Jory. And we actually went to, so we broke up for a couple months and got back together, went to a two day couples intensive with Charlie and Linda. Uh, Bloom, who are well-respected husband and wife couples counselors. And we went to Santa Cruz, spent two days, six hours a day doing couples counseling. And you talk about sitting in the fire. Oh my God. Think about addressing every one of the worst, most difficult, most painful topics in your relationship and your childhood over a two-day period. And it was that. And it's also highly effective, I think. But the courage that it takes to face some of that shit, like I was afraid. I was afraid to face face some of that, honestly. So where have you shown courage to face your own demons, darkness, shadow, crap that you have? I'm sure maybe you just didn't have any. Maybe it's the wrong question. Oh, yeah. No, not at all. No, that's incredible. I think that's exactly right. Um, And, you know, I talk about it as high flame and low flame. In, in other words, high flame has a lot of heat, a lot of intensity, and a lot of energy to transform, like the fire that's you know transforming fuel, um, wood into air, all of that. And so when you're sitting in high flame, it can be uncomfortable. It's hot. You're like, get me out of here. But if you can cultivate the ability to sit still in that fire, you know that growth is really coming fast. And then after that, you might need, you know, to lower that flame and you want low flame for a while. So like process and integrate and be with all of the change. And then eventually it can feel stagnant. Like it's just too low 
of energy for you and you need more. And so you're basically asking the universe to turn up that dial again. And we kind of keep going back and forth between the different heats that we need in life. Well, yeah, I think it, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to then actually just answer your question about when I've sat in, in discomfort, but I can hold that if you want to say. No, well, let's get personal. Yeah, let's get personal. <laughs> um, yeah, a huge one for me, honestly, it's still going back to motherhood because it's so alive for me right now. I have never felt the anger that I have felt when I was pregnant beyond like my own personal experience extended to the like fuck the patriarchy anger which to me feels so disembodied because i'm like where did all this anger come from it's not mine but it was it was connecting all the way back to how i had learned to value and understand what success was and motherhood had nothing to do with success it had nothing to do with self-worth it had nothing to do with value and we don't recognize it, right? For all the reasons we already know in society, it's unpaid labor, labor, it's invisible, blah, blah, blah. So it meant that when I wasn't working with my newborn baby, I felt worthless. And I had the, enough self-awareness, right? At that point, because I was already doing all this work to know that that wasn't true. So I wasn't sitting in self-pity of worthlessness. I was sitting in the anger of what was causing me to feel that way. And because I knew it wasn't true. And so I worked with that for about a year before it shifted. And of course, what was behind the anger was fear of what it actually meant to own the power of motherhood. Whoa. Like no wonder the patriarchal society has sort of covered that up because it is powerful. Be yeah, because we can't give birth, <laughs> so we have to play it down. Of course. And so now I'm really in the, the still beginning steps of, okay, moving that fear aside, not saying like I have to eliminate it or you know get rid of it because that's not the answer. The answer is learning how to move forward anyway and how yeah. to own that power. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing it. I completely understand it um, because part of what I deal with at times is men who are stay-at-home dads. And I think they have some similar issues there of, of struggling with worth in a society that doesn't value that role, whoever's doing it. I bet. Right. Um, I and bet. then they feel, you know, emasculated or less masculine on top of that. Right. Um, and yeah, so I totally have compassion for you in that. And I totally get it. And what I was going to say earlier when you were speaking is I'm always fascinated by two of our competing needs as humans, which is the need for certainty, safety. And the directly opposing need that we all have for novelty, surprise, and change. And those two are always going at each other. We're always, I think life is kind of this tug of war between those two back and forth on, on one level, always. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. That's so um that's so true. And, you know, for anyone who has a new baby at home and feels like they haven't left their house in forever, even though it's only been maybe a month or two, it can feel like you have no novelty, nothing new, right? You're just doing the same thing every day within the confines of your rocking chair or whatever the space is that you're in. Or when you're working and you're burnt out, working 20 hour days, 
and you feel like you don't have anything new or novel in life and you're craving something beyond what you know. But it's hard to risk, you know, making a change to for novelty because probably your 20-hour days are giving you a really nice paycheck or the safety that, you know, makes you feel um, kind of tied to that rhythm. Yeah. Or you need to sleep when you're a new mother. You know, I was thinking, I thought you were going to go 20 hour days as a new mother, but that's more like 24 hour days. And then you're not getting your basic needs met of, you know, sleeping. <laughs> um, yeah, sleep can feel novel when you get it again. I don't know. I, I hope that, uh, you know, may your children sleep well. Uh, yeah. That's um, the best blessing you can offer. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one I wanted when I was there. But my children are, you know, my youngest is 17 now. So I'm, almost out of the woods, which is kind of a nice place to be also. So in the book, what do you mean when you say we aren't who we think we are? Because that smacks of a lack of self-awareness for most of us. Yeah. I I mean, for me, that's really about being trapped in our heads Mm. and having strengthened this persona that we don't really realize it's what we're doing, but we're strengthening a persona of who we are when we show up in the world. And we play this little game when we meet people, when you shake their hand, we meet someone new, where we're actually saying, hi, nice to meet you, John. I believe that you are who you say you are. If you'll believe that I am who I say I am. And who I say I am is the persona I've been working on, right? So it's this really highly competent, respectful, respected, intelligent, worthy person who you can rely on, who's thoughtful, da 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 But that's not actually who I am, right? That's just sort of like the sweater that I'm wearing. And we forget that we can take our sweater off and put on a different one. What do you think the biggest aspect of that persona is? And in that, you know, that I'm trying to prepare or I'm trying to show you like, Hey, Danielle, nice to meet you. Because I think it's, it's, it's um, revealed in the question that we almost ask first all the time, at least in the U.S., of another person we're just meeting. Uh, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, we've learned to self-identify with our jobs. I'm an attorney. I'm a psychologist. I'm an you know, executive coach. Right. And that, I think, to me, is a huge mistake. And it's not done in other countries. People get annoyed in other countries, or it's rude if you ask them, what do you do too quickly? Yeah, that was one of the best things I learned about traveling was how irrelevant all of this time and energy I had spent into building my persona all of a sudden, right? No longer relevant. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, some of the smartest people I know, one guy was a truck driver. One guy did appliance repair. And how did that shake up how you understood the world? Um, it, it didn't too much, although it reinforced the idea that success isn't all about the, the occupation that you assume. And yeah. you can have these amazing attributes in any occupation. And, you know, I think it's so important to understand this because we're essentially asking everyone that we meet to validate this persona we've worked so hard for, right? Like, 
they don't know the invisible years of blood, sweat and tears and energy and, you know, the anxiety and the stress that went into creating this persona for you to see. Mm -hmm. When I think this is also why it's so hard to be a stay at home parent. Because if you're, if we first ask, oh, what do you do? I'm a stay-at-home parent. There's a bunch of assumptions we make based on that. Oh, boring. Nothing much to talk about. I don't really want to talk about your children. You know, probably hasn't gotten out of the house in six years. Mm-hmm. You know, worried about peanut butter spills, whatever it is. But we assume a lack of interest and a lack of, I don't know, many other things. I imagine. I, I can, like, I, I can. I can see some people assuming a lack of intelligence. Yeah, look, like I send my daughter, she's three, to a Montessori preschool. It's really important to me. It's like something that I value. Um, Yeah, I value that too. And, you know, like along with the definition of success that I grew up with, being a preschool teacher didn't really hold very much value, say. It does now for you. Let me tell you what, my daughter's preschool teacher is one of the smartest, most thoughtful, incredibly insightful, powerful, grounded women I have ever met. My husband, who is super intelligent and is with you know like world-class business people and executives all day long, she scares him. He doesn't get scared by people. Because... Because, she, oh, because, you know, one of the Montessori principles works around boundaries and how to hold your boundaries, which is something that as adults, right, we're just starting to understand. Uh-huh. But we're teaching it to kids in Montessori all day long. So she embodies those boundaries really, like, it's almost energetically obvious. And it's just this force of you meet my boundary or you don't, that's fine, but I'm not going to change for you. Mm-hmm. And then it's, you know, rippling out into the entire school because she's yeah, it's kind of badass. It's super, it's super badass. And so when she says to me or to Ted, really my husband, um, so Rhea's having trouble putting her shoes on by herself. It would be really great if you could send her to school with shoes that she could put on by herself. Mm-hmm. He comes home feeling like totally ashamed and embarrassed. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh my gosh, how could I have done that? <laughs> Yeah. My child's not enough. I'm not enough as a parent. I mean, you do feel that frequently. I'm not enough as a parent. I'm not oh, good yeah. enough. Yeah. That's a tough one. And yeah, anytime you're parenting, you're opening yourself up to judgment. Not that that was judgment, but um, yeah, I think we we open ourselves up to a lot of less than thinking as a parent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's no, there's no judgment in anything she said. She's asking for her to be able to put her own shoes on and to yeah. send her to school with shoes that can do that. And he's, you know, internalizing it as she has this threshold or this expectation. It's not really an expectation because we know that she wants all the kids to be able to put their own shoes on. Okay. So it's not like news to us. Yeah. And so then he goes, oh, crap. <laughs> I haven't taught my child to tie her shoes by three. I'm a failure. Oh, right. Yeah, totally. No, these are like Velcro, you know, slip-ons. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have high expectations, I imagine. I imagine he does. Um, So, you know, we talk a lot about authenticity. And it's a term that gets thrown around a lot these days. But how do we better understand it and really practice it? 
Mm, this is my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> yeah, look, we talk about authenticity a lot. It's like a very zeitgeisty concept. Um, and we tend to, unfortunately, cap it at our, I mean, you can speak to this from your profession, at our psychosocial physical roles, right? As who we are in relationship to other people and to the world and to our physical packaging. So who am I as a mother, a woman, an attorney, a community member, an athlete, an artist, uh, going gray, right? Like those are the kind of ways we tend to think about who we are. And those are all great ways to think about who we are. But there's another level to it, which goes, peel those things away. Let's look underneath and get to like our essence of who we are. The thing that when we connect with, we feel that vitality and energy and we go, oh, this is what I want to wake up for. This is what I was born for. And that is like, we can just lean into that and leverage that space. We're unstoppable. So we what would you say goes so in, much more? What would you say goes into that essence? It, it sounds like passions in there or purpose. Well, you know, as, as a fire pitta dosha, I'm going to say the fire of desire, the spark of inspiration. I have all kinds of fire words. And look, look, like, I think that's so corny, but I don't even do it on purpose. Like these are the things that come into my mind. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of ineffable. So I can't describe it in so many ways. Those are just examples. But the one that really hits me the most is it's home. Right? That's the space where we get to do what you were talking about in your visualization, where we let go of any effort. And and so, I mean, like, I like the uh, the exercise where you ask the question, I am fill in the blank, whatever number, 20, 40 times. Because inevitably you exhaust all the roles that you identify yourself with. And then you get to this place of, I am what I feel. I am what I think. I am my values. And I am my passion. Um, I am source, if you want to go there. Um, and, and I'm really a big one on values. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that our emotional mind can mislead us at times. And values are one of the ways to prevent that from happening. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think it's a really interesting question. You know, who are you when you strip away all the rules in your life? And what's and left? I, I, I love this um, practice. And it's something that I come back to all the time, because again, it's not something that you're finished with once you've done it, because we are dynamic, evolving people. And so that can change. Yeah. Um, you know, like it used to be for me, a huge value was, well, this actually hasn't changed, but the way it shows up has changed. Really what I meant to say is adventure, Mm. which speaks to the novelty aspect of who we are. And it showed up for me in travel. So of course, then I traveled across six continents and that's, you know, the basis for the book. But as a new mom and also through the pandemic, that's not available anymore. Mm -hmm. So for a while that, part of me, that value felt very um, suppressed, right? And so that piece of who I am dulled. But the great thing about this work is that you find ways to create adventure and novelty different in different ways, right? So as a new 
I don't know if I'm really a new mom anymore, but as a mom to young kids, seeing the, seeing the world through their eyes, through that newborn consciousness, the wonder, I mean, that, that is incredible adventure because there's also a great quote. I think it's Proust about how, um, you know, it's not about all the different places in the world that we can go. It's about looking through the world through different eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think both adventure. are true. Yeah, sure. Both, I mean, it's the internal and the external, yeah. but there's more available to us internally mm-hmm. because there's only, only so many 3D places in the world that we can go until, you know, Richard Branson or Elon Musk like gives us more access. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I do think that toddlers, toddlers in particular are really great teachers for us because they're so present and everything is new to them and they they explore the world with great joy and curiosity generally and that curiosity is something that i think we need to get back to as adults to embracing and making a conscious decision to tell ourselves i am a really intensely curious person whether it's about my environment or about the people around me i just want to get to know their stories better it makes a huge difference right and, you know, even, even going to our neighborhood Creek, which is like four blocks away. When I went with my daughter uh, a couple weeks ago, we went stick hunting and she showed me the exact type of stick that she was looking for. Could it be too long or too short or too fat or have like little branches coming off of it or whatever. And so I got to experience the Creek through that lens and it became completely new. And I think kids have a much better handle on happiness than we do as adults because of that curiosity and that open-mindedness and that exploration. And they, all the simple pleasures are new to them and vastly enjoyable. Whereas as adults, I think we get away from those simple pleasures that we knew so closely to our heart at the age of like five. And, you know, I think in high school, we start to look at the adult, you know, kind of behaviors that we think are going to make us happy, you know, Drinking, smoking, sex, rock and roll, risk-taking behaviors. And, you know, again, I'm not opposed to hedonism and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But those only last as long as the pleasure lasts. And so if we can find more ways to tap into joy, wonder, awe, amazement, the better off we're going to be. Absolutely. And and those are sort of the, the keys or catalysts to innovative thinking, creative solutions, those aha moments and insights that leapfrog us from where we think that we're going to somewhere totally new and amazing. And that is a great segue to our next and final question. Tell me more about the power of slowing down and how that actually speeds up the journey of getting to where we really want to go. Okay, so I'm going to explain this through a visual that I will very carefully Uh, use words so that everyone can imagine it in their mind's eyes. But I use this tool all the time. I love it. I love it. So I have this water bottle and the water in this water, I have it, I literally have it right by my desk. I'm holding it right now because I use it all the time with clients. And the water in this water bottle represents our minds. And in its undisturbed state, calm, clear. But what happens is we have these things called thoughts, right? So 
Each thought is represented in this water bottle by a speck of glitter. And what happens is from the moment we wake up in the morning, we're in our thoughts, right? We're thinking, oh, I really need to use the bathroom before I do anything. Uh, What's the weather going to be? I want to wear my purple sweater, but I don't think it's the right weather for my purple sweater. My hip kind of hurts. Did I sleep on it funny? Or do I need to call the doctor? Maybe maybe it's because it's going to rain. And so before we know it, we're in this, you know, this like glitter, my, the glitter in my bottle is blue. So we're in this blue murky hurricane of thought because we're just swirling around in our, our glitter thoughts. So when we navigate life like this, it's just completely um, chaotic, right? We have no calm clarity. How are we going to see insights and aha moments and creative solutions and things that we don't normally see if we're always operating like this? So how do we get our calm clarity back? We do nothing, right? Because left alone, which is what happens when we are still and present, when we stop shaking our water bottle, the glitter settles to the bottom and the water rises to the top and we reclaim calm clarity. And that space, that clear water, then we have the expanded awareness to notice all of the things, like you mentioned the shower earlier as an example of like, oh, those aha moments drop in for us. I'm, I'm smiling on this end because I have that exact same thing. I call it a moody jar and I explain how emotions, you know, do the same thing. That when we get really triggered emotionally, that glitter gets stirred up and it clouds the water and you can't see clearly until you give yourself time and you calm down, and then everything settles to the ground. And we still have the emotions are still in us. But until we can calm down, we're not going to see things clearly. Exactly. And I think that's a really important point, though. Like, the glitter in this bottle, the thoughts or the emotions, whichever they're representing, they don't leave. It's not about emptying ourselves of them. It's about understanding them and then, like, pulling them out to use them from a more conscious state. Well, Danielle, I could talk to you for days and I want to say thank you so much for sharing your time with me and tell the listeners where they can get a hold of you, where they can find out more and the name of your book again. Oh, it's been such a joy, John. I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah. So my name is Danielle Sundberg and you can find me on my website, which is daniellesundberg.com and you can get my book there. It's called Atlas of Being. From Briefcase to Backpack, One Former Lawyer's Exploration of the Human Way. And the book is excellent. I, I got to attest. Um, it's a little frustrating because there's a lot of wisdom in it for one so young. But, you know, that's just my own personal jealousy. And, and so, so thank you very much for sharing it with, with us. I, I greatly appreciate it. I greatly appreciate your words and your thoughts. Oh, that, that, I appreciate that. That means a lot. I've had so much fun. And that's it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. If you loved this episode, or even if you merely liked it, please be sure to rate, review, and share. And if you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. This is Dr. John signing off. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 